welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are not continuing with post-scarcity anarchism, because the next section was uh, effectively a rebuttal to criticisms of licit Marxist, which in one sense is a little bit funny because of the recursive nature of licit Marxist being a response to responses to the main text of post-scarcity anarchism, to then tack in the response to the response to the response. But more importantly, I, I did read through it, but I felt like it was not especially illuminating in terms of actually broadening what had been said thus far, and it was pretty heavily, at least to begin with, responding to a particular criticism of listened Marxists, which is not focused on listened Marxists, but I thought it would be interesting to go and find that, to find a rebuttal, a contrary opinion, especially a contemporary one. So actually, this will be a reading of Monthly Review from 1970, uh, Volume 21, Issue 10. I will be linking archive.org, where you can get this, shoutouts archive.org, they have a lot of useful stuff, uh, and I would not have found this if I had to physically acquire it. And so it will be a pretty short reading, all told, but I thought it would be interesting to read a Marxist response of the time that has a skepticism of what post-scarcity anarchism is peddling, because a lot of my response has certainly been with the benefit of hindsight and knowledge of the present that makes me uncharitable to the claims being made by Bookchin in the book. So I think it is interesting to get a rebuttal that is in fact just does not agree with it at the time. So let's read. On Future Developments in the College Left by Robert B. Carson Over the past half-dozen years, college radicalism has been a crucial force in the revitalization of the American left. Its swelling numbers, its vitality, and its brashness have contributed to a level of political commitment and activism that too long had been lacking. But now there is a feeling among observers, close and distant, that college radicalism in America is pointed toward trouble. It is not really something that one can put a finger on, but it is there nevertheless. A mixture of weariness, frustration, and impatience that seems to be directing college radical activity away from its past undertakings. The change seems to have begun last spring in the second go-round with the university and has grown enormously after SDS's fratricidal battles in Chicago last June. Indeed, the RYM2 Weatherman fracture is usually pointed to as an illustration of this shift. However, this is at best only an extreme and partial characterization of recent developments on the campuses themselves, especially since national SDS has consistently been moving further away from college radicalism. The change of mood, of course, varies from campus to campus, reflecting the differing levels of consciousness, theoretical expertise, and local issues. But there are certain broadly common features. For instance, there is a general frustration and impatience over the apparent ineffectiveness of past efforts against the national policies of imperialism and racism. Nothing much seems to have changed, for war and genocide continue. 
and too many dedicated young radicals, that amounts to failure. Added to this has been the dilemma of how to deal with the liberal and non-ideological front of the moratorium and MOB people who seem to have preempted radical grounds. There is also much disappointment over energies directed against higher educational institutions, for, aside from learning some important lessons about the repressive tactics of school administrators, little was in fact gained from past encounters with the university. And then, personal problems intrude more and more. The debilitating debate over lifestyle always seems to come up within radical college groups. What to do about drugs and hippie behaviour? These questions invariably produce costly divisions and deflect energy away from political questions. Meanwhile, among the older and more experienced people of the campus left, college radicalism as such is increasingly a passing phase. The story is pretty much the same on every campus this year. Many of the older and more able leaders have graduated, some have been dismissed, and some simply did not return last fall. For others still on campus, the attraction of campus-centred activity is not as personally immediate as the problem of determining how to function as a radical after college is over. As a result, there is a serious lack of able leadership. The foregoing examination of the problems of college radicals should not be misinterpreted. It would be quite incorrect to assume that the college left is about to fade off into the limbo of used-up political movements. The numbers of young radicals are much too great, and their commitment is much too deep. To be sure, universities are still successfully engaged in producing robots, but they are only rarely cheerful robots anymore. Even to the non-political student, the university is sunk in the mire of a sick society. And, as radical faculty members know, except those in the deepest underbrush of American higher education, the most pointed and bitter criticism of this society can be offered in the classroom without fear of student dissent or criticism. In this sense, campuses are more radical than ever. However, the question posed here is, what form will this radicalism take in the future? One tendency which seems to be emerging and which, this writer believes, must sooner or later receive serious attention from all of the American left is a drift toward anarchist analysis and politics. The charge is a serious one, and it needs explanation and qualification that probably goes beyond the limits of this very generalized account. It should be an... <clears throat> it should be admitted at the outset that the following use of anarchism as a descriptive term is quite broad, referring both to an identifiable historical body of political doctrine, which has recently gained new life, as well as to a vague and ill-defined political and social outlook, which in its emotional and inspirational tones is closely related to traditional anarchism. The latter quality among college radicals is the most difficult to explain and to analyse. Colleges, however, have no monopoly on the development of anarchism. There is a growing unease among active radicals and functioning radical groups outside the universities about a rising anarchist feeling or commitment. Probably the most recent focal point has been the Weathermen, who are really no longer a college-based radical group 
and their vanguard actions allegedly for the purpose of exposing to the whole society the repressive nature of the American state. Whether or not weathermen and avowedly anarchist groups on the left signify a serious shift of American radicalism to anarchist values and analysis remains to be proved, but clearly a significant anarchist thrust lurks just below the surface of contemporary American radicalism, and this is a tendency that needs immediate and searching study. Since there is no single monolithic theme to this anarchist tendency among college radicals, serious definitional difficulties doubtless arise when a general and simplified description is broadly applied. However, one pamphlet, Listen Marxist, published by the anarchos and widely read by the college left since the June SDS convention, is as good a place to begin as any. For the message of Licit Marxist is a fair articulation of what many college radicals, even those who will bitterly protest the anarchist label, are thinking. The anarchist publication came to my attention in a manner that deserves recounting, for it illustrates the measure of concern expressed in this writing. A few months ago, during the summer session, I encountered one of the girls from the local SDS chapter in the library stacks. I knew her as a strong leader with an able mind, a cut above the average membership. There was and is no doubt of her commitment to radical ideas and action, although, like most of her fellows in SDS, she was confused and skeptical in her own theoretical analysis of her radicalism. She had been to Chicago and was now more confused and dismayed than ever. Not being currently enrolled as a summer school student, she told me that she had been denied privileges of the library for the summer, and she asked me if I would take out some books for her on my ID card. As the library was then giving faculty members a bad time on overdue books, and I had already had some difficulty with borrowing books for non-students, I demurred and then asked her if she would be able to return them within three weeks. She said no, and perhaps, realising my embarrassment as to what to do or say next, stuffed a book under her blouse and said, Fuck the bastards, I'll steal it then. As she walked out of the stacks, I stood there, puzzling over a newly discovered bourgeois hang-up in my own character. A few weeks later, I received in the mail a copy of Listen Marxist, with a note from the same girl asking me to read it carefully so we could talk about it in the fall. Listen Marxist is a flashy little pamphlet, letter set and proofread, a notch above the usual mimograph and strike over publications so common on the left. It is written in a fast and hip style, and the first inclination of someone on the far side of the generation gap is not to take it seriously. However, that would be a mistake, for it is a very serious, if somewhat lightweight, attack upon Marxism and a plea for a straightforward and simplistic anarchism. Its chapter headings easily reveal its contents. The historical limits of Marxism, the myth of the party, the myth of the proletariat, and so on. A major thrust of Listen Marxist is to explain away, in fact, to destroy, a class-based analysis of society and revolutionary activity. As the abundant society grows, class definitions are seen fading away. Quote, the process of disintegration, in short, now becomes generalized and cuts across virtually all the traditional classes, values, and institutions. It creates entirely new issues, modes of struggle, forms of organization, and calls for an entirely new approach to theory and praxis. End quote. 
It follows, therefore, that the left should not accept the workeritis of Marx's analysis. Rather than identifying with the class consciousness of the proletariat, which is seen as a basically conservative force anyway, the college left is apt to identify with the workers' growing unclass consciousness. Quote, the most promising development in the factories today is the emergence of young workers who smoke pot, fuck off on their jobs, drift into and out of factories, grow long or longish hair, demand more leisure time rather than more pay, steal, harass all authority figures, go on wildcats, and turn on their fellow workers. Even more promising is the emergence of this human type in trade schools and high schools, the reservoir of the industrial working class to come. To the degree that workers, vocational students, and high school students link their lifestyles to various aspects of the anarchic youth culture, to that degree will the proletariat be transformed from a force for the conservation of the established order into a force for revolution. End quote. The rest of the argument is not too difficult to imagine. The doctrinaire fashion of Marxists is attacked by the simple logic of quote, why substitute the dictatorship of the proletariat for the dictatorship of the capitalists? End quote. The appeal is highly personalistic. Quote, to make it possible for each individual to gain control of his own life. End quote. To encourage people to remake themselves, etc. It is aimed at the idealistic youth and their growing subculture. Being flipped out is defended as a serious political action of self-expression. Listen, Marxist rejects a historical consciousness of the development and decomposition of capitalism and calls simply for a shedding of the past, to start anew, fresh, and with nothing of the past etched on our consciousness. There is, I suppose, no way of knowing how many college radicals have sympathetically read Listen, Marxist, nor how many more privately hold to similar views, but we should not underestimate the attractiveness of such appeals especially given the frustration and weariness that characterize much of the college left. Moreover, the more experienced on the American left should have expected some crude kind of anarchist political analysis to spring up in the colleges. The crucial dividing issue between Marxists and anarchists has always been, at bottom, the proper use of historical and class analysis. In general, anarchism rejects both history and class, and emphasizes an individualistic and self-centered radical consciousness, and this gives it a special attractiveness to college kids. The radical commitment of the college left has always been detached from a historical and class analysis of their society. Their aim, in the main, has been to condemn past and present America and to build a new society. This was explicitly the program developed at Port Huron by the Students for a Democratic Society, and the twisted course of events since then has not seriously deflected it or its splinter affiliates from this goal. But in building the new society, there has been no real attempt to utilize a truly historical dimension. Granted that the college left has accepted the existence of a class division in America, or at least those who saw need for any such profound analysis accepted it, but as veterans of the old left and Marxist scholars have been long uncomfortably aware, although they have rarely spoken out on this point, all too few of the college radicals have shown much interest in the intricacies of Marxist analysis. Those who have done so have often found themselves separated from their less 
doctrinaire colleagues and have either been driven to the margins of leadership or out of the movement altogether. Marxist analysis, to the degree that it was ever accepted by the rank and file and most of the leadership of the college left, has been primarily a political or rhetorical vehicle and only rarely an intellectual method or worldview. The Marxist demand for class analysis has always been difficult for college radicals. Most have grown up strongly affected by society's commitment to an individualistic social ethic with its emphasis on personal and private values. Even when the materialistic or cash value husk of this ethic is stripped off, there remains in most radical kids the seed of a private or personalized social outlook. In fact, their own decision to attend or to continue in college may be seen as an affirmation of the American myth of the self-made and private man. Meanwhile, college itself continuously reinforces these internalized feelings. In the same way that mass university education in the corporate liberal state works to erase observable class conflict on a broad scale for non-radicals, similarly it tends to blur the radicals' vision. College, while it heightens and even creates the essential sense of alienation, still directs it away from a clear class analysis. While there have been important efforts to relate college radicals to class political action, and many ex-college radicals have made the transition, the vast majority of undergraduate radicals remain unaffected. College, even if it is seen as a hated instrument of a ruling class's domination over the whole society, quite simply itself does not create class identity. To the college radical, filled with guilt about his own role in this society and sharply alienated from its objects, a self-perception develops in which he is not part of any class but really declassed, cut off from those who are clearly proletarian or bourgeois. His radicalism is real but it remains non-historical and largely private and it develops individualistic and existential qualities that are really carryovers from his earlier commitment or subjection to the American myth. Although he is referring to problems of three or four decades ago, Martin Sklar's recent observations on the intellectual radical have much application to the present left. Sklar states, quote, Even for those intellectuals who identified with the proletariat, their trans-historical outlook still remained parochial, limited, and insufficiently world-historical, still insufficiently class-conscious, and so disabling them for class-directed socio-political action effective for realizing their own revolutionary aspirations. They were unable, in short, fully to comprehend their society and their selves from the viewpoint of their own immediate situation and their own role as intellectuals and artists, so long as that comprehension remained at the level of functionalism, however self-exalted the function, rather than of class. Their consciousness, that is, still remained substantially alienated from their own broader and historically concrete humanity. They were caught in a historical situation where they could not make the passage from apparently declassed radicals to class-conscious revolutionaries. Footnote 1. Put it in a blunt and highly argumentative way, many college kids find the transition from republican to anarchist much less difficult than might be imagined. Without the development of a radical historical analysis of their own growth or that of their society, 
and given their own life experience of growing up in a society emphasizing the individualistic mythos, the inclination of young radicals to form their radicalism in personalized and existential modes is explicable. Indeed, given those conditions, it is really quite surprising that the degree of organized or movement commitment and activism seen in the recent past was ever obtained. However, the current feeling of frustration and unfulfillment with past radical activity on the campus now threatens to bring the heretofore submerged personalism of the college left to the surface. It is not difficult to imagine that many very committed kids may find such appeals as listen Marxist to be attractive, and a crude kind of individualistic anarchism is very likely to be the next phase for much of the college-based left. And that is the reading for this week. This, I think, was a pretty good summation of some thoughts. It connects to previous existing criticisms I had about anarchism both here and in the conquest of bread where there is a concerning amount of shared dna with libertarianism where there is an assertion that things will go well left to their own devices i won't be reading the continuation of listen marxist that responds to the article i just read but one of the th- one of the impressions i got from reading it was that bookchin criticizes the idea of class analysis as being too narrow a viewpoint for analyzing all all systems of oppression. And my response to that is that, yes, because you need intersectionality, you need to understand that class is real and also other dynamics are at play that are all real and all need to be considered. Whereas... Bookchin's odd response seems to be destroy the class distinction because it doesn't account for all cases and instead just create anarchist communes because Bookchin doesn't really actually address gender or race or sexuality in any meaningful way despite claiming that that's one of the shortcomings of Marxism that it's only concerned with class. At the end of the day, a lot of my still-held skepticism has to do with the individualistic assertions at the core of this anarchist philosophy, at the very least, where whether it's specifically the myth of the American self-made man or just a notion that losing restraints will only provide benefit. I still laugh at a claim made in The Conquest of Bread by Kropotkin that all of the railway companies collaborated in Europe, so why couldn't a bunch of individuals just freely collaborate as anarchists without needing a communist structure? A truly baffling notion that belied some very libertarian concepts. Obviously, modern libertarianism did not exist in its current form. I'm obviously applying contemporary libertarianism to something Kropotkin wrote a long time ago, but I think the connecting thread is still there. That is going to do it for this week. Again, not sure what next time will be, so stay tuned as I determine that. But if you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. 
You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network and get some bonus podcasts there too. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.